Hello and welcome to the DWD podcast, a weekly look at the progress of voluntary assisted dying legislation in Victoria. If it's progress you're looking for, then we had an enormous amount last week when the voluntary assisted dying bill of 2017 was tabled in the Victorian Parliament by Health Minister Jill Hennessy. The reading in Parliament was attended by a packed public gallery with advocates from both supportive and opposed sides in attendance, as well as upper house MPs who sat in to hear the reading of the bill. Prior to that reading in Parliament, Jill Hennessy spoke with John Fain about her mother's recent death and her motivation for leading Parliament to debate and hopefully pass this piece of legislation. Here's a short clip of that interview. Jill Hennessy, the Health Minister in the Andrew State Labor Government, joins me this morning and off the back of a personal tragedy, the death of her own mother, this particular debate has taken on some extra relevance and poignancy. Health Minister Jill Hennessy, good morning to you. Morning, John. And with your permission, and thank you, can you tell us about your mum? Uh, It's clearly helped frame your attitude to this entire issue. My mum was uh, not only a Catholic, but a person that supported assisted dying. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was um, a little girl, and for a lot of her life, she lived very well um, with that illness and disease. Uh, However, that illness and disease started to take things from her life that were incredibly important to her. Um, and um, she would regularly talk about her frustration at not being able to have some control and some say in her own death because she was smart enough to know what MS was going to do to her body as uh, she moved towards the end of her life. That was Jill Hennessy speaking with John Fain. We'll link off to that full interview in the episode description. In all of the excitement surrounding the progress here in Victoria, it's also important to point out that the New South Wales Parliament also tabled their assisted dying bill. So a big hello to all of our New South Wales friends who will soon be uh, getting stuck into debate. Here in Victoria, debate has been adjourned until October 17 to give uh, the members of Parliament time to read the legislation. Now to this week's main segment. Nurses have a very important voice in the assisted dying debate. They are at the front line of our healthcare and they play a large role in people's end of life experiences. We sat down with nurse and assisted dying advocate Tara Knipe to get her insight into the need for voluntary assisted dying laws. I wouldn't want to generalise about what the role of nurses is, uh, being that there's so many different kinds and and types uh, across the board. So if you could provide a bit of an insight into what your nursing background is. Absolutely. So I started my training as a registered nurse in 1989, and I was one of the last groups to train at a hospital. Uh, During my training, I got to work in every warden department of my tertiary metropolitan hospital. Uh, and also had placements at a couple of other hospitals and specialty areas. And I stayed at the same hospital for the rest of my clinical career. Uh, So I transitioned to education at the end of March this year, and I was at the Alfred for nearly 28 years. Uh, After my registration, I worked... I spent a little bit of time in road trauma, but for the most part I worked in medical specialty areas, 17 years in neurology, about 17 years in renal medicine, so people with kidney failure and transplantation. Um, I spent some work in infectious diseases, particularly with patients who have HIV and related illnesses, um, and people with stroke. 
And what experiences throughout that career, well, your career so far, have led you to recognise the need for end-of-life choices such as the voluntary assisted dying well? The first person I saw die was quite early on in my training. I was about three months in and she was very jaundiced. She had continuous retching. She wasn't vomiting because she hadn't eaten for a couple of weeks. And she died a lot faster than the nursing staff were expecting. So there's a thing that we call a dying trajectory and it's basically your path from not being very well to dying. And hers was steeper than they expected and her death was quite rushed and unpleasant, a lot faster than the experienced nurses I was working with predicted. Um, And the last thing she did just before she died was retch again. And back then we didn't have a lot of the drugs that we've got now. So it's very likely that if that same patient was in that situation now, her management would be much better. Plus palliative care has come a really long way. But one of the big issues for me is still that doctors are not as good as a group at recognising that death is part of life and it's not a failure. And so we still have patients who, like her, are being actively treated instead of the focus being on their best short-term interests because they've only got a short term. So this patient had surgery seven days before she died to remove a lot of her internal organs, even though they knew that wouldn't treat the cancer, and that contributed to her to her nausea. Most of the patients that I've looked after who were dying had really pleasant, comfortable deaths, and I really enjoy doing palliative care. It feels like it's nursing at its most fundamental, and by that I don't mean basic. I mean stripped down so that it's purely about the patient and supporting their family members. Everything that you do is about promoting the comfort of the patient. Um, And I really enjoy being able to make that kind of a difference where I know my care has made that person's dying a little better. And I think we need to look at dying like we look at the beginning of life, where we have experts who help midwife patients through the ends of their lives. Um, but there are a small number of patients that I've cared for, even with the input of amazing palliative care physicians and nurses, um, where there just wasn't an ability to resolve all of their symptoms. And so I have a small handful of patients who, when I think of voluntary assisted dying, I think of these people that we weren't able to help who died in pain, distress and discomfort. The thing is a lot of patients have a multitude of issues that are going on. So one of my patients had renal failure. Um, As a result of that, she had a complication as a result of that that caused ulcerating necrotic areas on her buttocks, thighs and upper legs and we couldn't treat them. It's very difficult to cure these uh, calciphylaxis wounds. Uh, ulcerating anyway. necrotic, sorry for those of us not, yes. not in the business. I'm getting, that sounds like a very bad ulcer, is that yes. the, the short of it? So necrotic means dead. Yeah. So she had areas 
small circles anywhere between half a centimetre and about three centimetres in diameter, kind of irregularly like freckled all over her buttocks, uh, her hips and the tops of her thighs, probably 40 or so of them. Mm -hmm. And they're very painful and there is not yet a recognised treatment and certainly there wasn't then. And the pain is partly normal pain and part of it is neuropathic pain because the nerves are sending out pain signals and that makes it quite difficult to treat. And then you put her kidney failure on top of that, which means that doses of medication can look like they're not sufficiently effective and then suddenly, because the kidneys aren't clearing them, suddenly the patient overdoses. And... Um, at the same time she had a heart condition which also made it more complicated and so we couldn't give her enough pain relief the only treatment that we had was painful which was basically dressing the wounds and hoping they'd improve and she would crawl up the corridor especially on night duty crying in pain and there wasn't anything that we could give her because if we gave her enough pain relief it would kill her and the doctors were really uncomfortable with the idea that they would directly contribute to her death. So that's one situation. And there was no question that she was going to die, that this was a fatal condition and that her renal failure was fatal as well. Um, I looked after a gentleman who had liver cancer and also had metastases or tumours in his brain. And as a result of that, he would have five or six seizures every hour. Um, he was on anticonvulsant therapy, so he had medication to stop the seizures, but we couldn't give him a maximum dose because of his liver failure. So just like with kidney failure, that drug builds up. And so he's having the best treatment he could, but he was still having these seizures. And he was in pain all of the time because his muscles were so sore from the seizures. He couldn't do anything, we couldn't even give him a cup of hot tea because he would have a seizure and spill it on himself. And after each seizure he'd say to me, please just let me die. Um, I've looked after a number of patients with motor neurone disease and the reason that it comes up so often when we talk about voluntary assisted dying is because it is such a thief of a disease because every time this particular patient I'm thinking about came in, it had stolen another thing from him. So his sense of balance when he was first being diagnosed and progressive weakness and then his voice and then his ability to feed himself and then his ability to swallow. And it happened over a period of months and so I got to know him and his wife quite well and I worked a lot of night duty and patients don't sleep at night, that's a misconception, but you do often get an opportunity to spend more time with your patients because there are less interventions, there are less people about. And so I felt as though I particularly got to know this couple very well and the last time that he came in, he couldn't even close his mouth because he lost so much control over his muscles. So he was lying in bed, completely dependent, but also completely aware of what was going on. And his wife said to me, there has to be something 
that you can do, please. And I said, I'm really sorry, there isn't, I wish there was. And she dropped to her knees in front of me and implored me, literally begged me on her knees to help her husband. And there wasn't anything that I could do. There was no doubt, and there still isn't, that he wanted to go, that it was killing him to see his wife and his two children watching him suffer, that I think a lot of people who who are opposed to voluntary assisted dying say that pain isn't always the biggest reason that people have. And they talk about existential suffering as though it is a trivial thing. And I think that's because it doesn't sound that significant. Vomiting that you can't stop or pain that you can't stop, everybody can understand that because we've all had an acute version of that. But what we're talking about is imagine you right now, the way that you are now, completely aware of everything. You're lying in bed, your knee is bent just a little bit too much for you to be comfortable. You've got a small scratch on your ear but you can't move your hand. You have been incontinent and the pad that you've got has whipped the urine away but you still feel unclean because we're not used to having sitting in a puddle of urine even if it gets whipped away. You've got a little bit of burning around your rectum because you used your bowels before and you were cleaned up but they missed a little bit. And you're thirsty and the nurse comes in and asks you if you'd like a drink. Say yes. She will give you a couple of mouthfuls of water that is stale and lukewarm that's sitting on the overbed table. If you ask her to get you some cold fresh water, which is what you're really craving, you won't see her again for at least half an hour because with all the will in the world, she will go out of that room and get caught up with something. Or at least that's something that you're risking have happen. And that's just a, a couple of minutes. But what you've got is that scenario for the rest of your life, that you are unable to contribute anything, that you still have all the feelings and all of the thoughts and all of the needs of someone else and you know every day that it's going to get worse. That's what existential suffering in this context is. It's not some kind of high-blown immaterial, irrelevant conceit. It is what is there for some of my patients all of the time. And some people choose to continue to live with that, that, that every moment of their life is valuable. And I completely respect that. My cousin died four years ago of metastatic breast cancer. She was 39 when she was diagnosed. And she went into hospice on the morning that she died. She wanted every moment of her life. And that is absolutely her choice, and I completely support it. However, there are some people for whom it's too much. And just knowing that you have an option when it is too much, that you have a prescription there that you can take, is enough for 40% of people who go through the application process. Just knowing that they have some control over a situation where they have no control makes a huge difference. 
Hmm. Um, I think I can know the answer to the next question I'm going to ask you, but you've given me a couple of uh, examples where people that you've been treating have uh, asked for essentially assistance in death. Obviously, you tell them that there's no, there's nothing there that you can do for them. Does that conversation then continue at all in any form w internally with the rest of the staff? This person has asked me for assistance. Do you discuss it with doctors or? So, one of the things, the differences between the relationship nurses have with their patients and doctors have, at least in the acute setting, is that we spend a lot more time with our patients. And the nature of both that time and the relationship, that we do intimate care, that we tend to see patients over shift after shift and not just for short periods of time, means that we get to know our patients and what they want a lot better than the doctors do. And you're quite right, we do speak to each other. And most of our colleagues similarly have relationships with these patients over time. So, for example, I would quite often go to visit patients that I wasn't looking after on a shift because I knew that they were in that, that for that admission um, to say hello and see how they were. So sometimes I would have patients who I wasn't directly involved in the care of on that admission who would have those conversations with me, maybe because they didn't know the nurse they were looking after well enough or because the nurse that was looking after them didn't... Uh, wasn't open to it or because they'd tried another avenue and were just really hoping. And I document it in my notes and I tell it to the nurse who is taking over from me and also from the nurse in charge. And the response that I have always got from my colleagues is sorrow and empathy and understanding of why the patient is like that. Uh, why they have requested that, why, they've, why they feel that way, and frustration because, and I'm not in any way diminishing the role of doctors, I think that great doctors are invaluable. But when the doctor makes a decision about, for example, not increasing the patient's pain relief because of the risk of complications, and I understand that it's their registration online, and that's not a concern that I have to worry about. But I then have to spend however long it is trying to support my patient and their frustrated, distressed, angry family members. And that's distressing not because I have their anger and their frustration, that's part of my role, but because I see that they're suffering and it's really difficult because my job is to help care for them, to make their suffering less. And it's really frustrating to be helpless in the face of that. Um, so where does the rest of the nursing community sit on voluntary assisted dying? It does depend very much on we're a large group of people um, and there is a huge diversity of opinion about everything even really straightforward clinical things. So we don't have consensus. There are certainly nurses and midwives who don't support voluntary assisted dying, um, but the general population is overwhelmingly in support of it, and that percentage is higher in nursing because we have all seen people die. Higher than what the general population of the public is. Exactly because I think it's difficult to understand unless you've seen someone dying badly, it's difficult to understand how much someone can go through and not be dead. 
And it's also really difficult if you're a layperson to understand things like pain that can't be controlled because few of us have experience of chronic, lasting, difficult pain. And the thing is, people who are dying build up a tolerance to opiate drugs. So they can be on a really significant dose and it doesn't have anything like the effect that a far smaller dose would have on someone who's what we call opiate naive, so a person who hasn't had those kinds of drugs. Um, and it is a really difficult balancing act because depending on what organ or organs are failing, um, you don't know how it's going to play out. But we do know that you can see this person with these symptoms that we can't do anything about. Uh, and what kind of conversations are taking place for the, for the nurses um, in regards to the issue in, in Victoria? So the overwhelming impression that I've had both from the colleagues that I work with and also from feedback that I've had from members of the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation is relief that this is something that's being addressed and that it looks as though this is something that's going to go ahead. There are certainly uh, nurses, particularly in palliative care, who are concerned that voluntary assisted dying will be seen as an easier way out than palliative care or that it will take funds from palliative care. But what we know from overseas experience is that everywhere that has introduced legislation like this and even legislation that is vastly broader than the legislation Victoria is looking at has had an improvement in palliative care services and at least as importantly I think an awareness that palliative services are there um, because if you don't know you can't ask for them and we know that doctors get better at referring patients to palliative care because patients come to them and say for example, I've been diagnosed with cancer, not interested, want to take this medication and just go in my own time. And part of the process, particularly in Oregon, where this bill is heavily uh, modelled after, one of the, the things is that the doctors have to consider what other kinds of interventions there are. So a lot of patients get referred off for other kinds of interventions and in the process find that their symptoms are able to be managed enough that they don't need to take advantage of the, of the legislation. Uh, so what do nurses who support voluntary assisted dying need to do to take action? So the most important thing is to make sure that your Member of Parliament knows how you feel, both in the lower house and the upper house. Uh, men and women are elected to represent what the people think and they can't know what you think unless you tell them. So write or call to your lower and upper house MPs and it's very easy to find out which your, who your MP is. And remember that this is a state issue, so there's no point contacting your federal MP. Um, and phone calls and face-to-face -face are best, but these are very busy people. So if you're going to write, send a snail mail letter because emails are looked at by staffers who obviously have to filter a lot of information for their boss. Um, and you want, if you're going to go to the effort of writing 
you want to have it be read. And your letter should say, it only, only, only needs to be brief, it only needs to be a few paragraphs, you don't need to write your entire life story, but basically why you support this legislation. So what personal experiences or professional experiences you've had that have made you come to the conclusion that this is an important adjunct to the very good palliative care services we already provide. That was Tyra Knipe, a nurse and a very powerful voice on the need for voluntary assisted dying laws. We thank her very much for her time. Like Tyra said, if you support these laws and want your state MP to vote in favour of them, please ensure that you call, write, email or visit them to voice your support. It's particularly important now that legislation has been tabled. We'll include a link to the DWDV website that has information and resources to help you take action in the description. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Listen in next week as we check in with Dying With Dignity Victoria President Leslie Vick to see what her thoughts on the legislation are and how the push for law reform is tracking. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.